Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's show, I'm speaking with Akshay Verma. Now, Akshay is the Director and Head of Legal Operations at Facebook. Now, Akshay's journey is a fascinating one. He talks to us about how he got to Facebook back in 2018 and what's happened in his three years there in that role, particularly in circumstances where the Facebook legal team has just grown exponentially. So there's some fantastic insights. He talks to us about what he focused on and also what he recommends other legal operations team focus on to get those needle-moving wins and no surprises, reducing and managing outside council spend is a big theme there. Also loved Akshay's answer to my MythBuster question, which was, you know, what, what do you think is accepted wisdom in the industry, which is just not right? Now, I won't spoil the surprise. I'll leave you guys to listen in. But uh, I tell you what, it's a fantastic show. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So just sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hi, Akshay. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Fantastic to have you on the show. Now, actually, if you've listened to the podcast before, you might know that uh, usually I start with a bit of a high-level overview of the career, and then we do a bit of a deep dive. But you started your career actually as a paralegal at Latham and Watkins. You were an environmental lawyer then for a number of years, spent some time at Axiom, and then you joined the Facebook legal ops team, I think, in 2018. And currently now you're director, head of legal operations for Facebook. So at a very high level, take I think that's a, that's an accurate summary. Have I got that right? Yes, it, it is indeed. Fantastic. Assuming my LinkedIn is accurate, I, I do. Yeah, that. that's right. And, and you're also <laughs> I, I I see in 2017 an adjunct professor at Santa Clara University, so we might that's talk right. a little bit about that too. Yeah, sure. So take us through the journey so far, some of the highlights, perhaps some of the crossroads yeah. in the decisions you've made to take those positions. Yeah, you know my class, the class that I teach at my alma mater at my law school is about career pathing in the law, and as a part of that, it's all about how to think about the career, what the landscape looks like, how to plan, how to execute all the things you never learned in law school, but you probably really should, and maybe even before that. And this bit of the story that I'll share with you is is something that I share with my students. And it's kind of, you know, the zig and the zag that got me here so far and whatever zigging and zagging is ahead, right? So I, you know, I'm an immigrant to the United States moved uh, to Cleveland, Ohio in the dead of winter in 1984 at the age of eight. And then moved out to California a couple of years later. My dad was an engineer and he started in Intel. So that kind of started our California stint in 1986. And if you grew up in California in the late 80s, early 90s in middle school, so for me, this was in eighth grade, the schools, the public schools send you to Yosemite for a week to do a science camp. And so I went with with my eighth grade class and this is in 1989 and We had five nights, two nights up at the rim, and then three nights in the valley. And as part of the programming that the school put together with the federal government that runs the parks, so these are all federal, it's all federal land, part of the education that we received was on environmental issues. For two nights, we got uh, exposure to the to the hot environmental issues of the day, which back then, and uh, Jim, you'll remember this, CFCs were a yep. big issue, right? Chlorofluorocarbons, aerosols, hairspray, and uh, yep. 
I don't really need hairspray, but I know yeah. what it is. And then deforestation, styrofoam, you know, we're causing some pretty, pretty, yep. we were noticing for the first time as human beings that they were causing some pretty significant damage to the environment. Most of that has been cleared up, but now deforestation is in bad shape. And yeah. they're, they're predicting the Amazon rainforest to be beyond the point of no return very soon i, I don't want to talk about the doom and gloom on yeah, this it's but, depressing it's very depressing you know yeah. you, you asked about crossroads that was a, yeah. that was kind of the first spark for for environmentalism for me and really i really dug into those issues even at that age and through high school started an environmental club at my high school in phoenix arizona minored in environmental policy at berkeley as my undergraduate as part of my undergraduate coursework and then in my and i think my junior year decided that i wanted to attack those issues through the law. I took an environmental law class and really, really enjoyed it. And when they went back to Europe, how conservation was viewed, how that didn't really translate over to a resource-rich environment like the United States when the settlers came here, and why that could be catastrophic for us as a country and, and certainly for the planet. So during college, decided, okay, I'm going to go to law school and I'm, I'm going to practice environmental law. And by the time I graduated from college, I was so sick of school, I decided that I really should work for a little while, earn some money. That landed me at Latham. I didn't do any environmental law at Latham. It was in Menlo Park in the heyday of the dot-com boom and bust, so early 2000s, and was doing a lot of intellectual property litigation with my science background. It was great. Well, fast forward to law school, went into with the intention of doing intellectual property litigation, ended up meeting a, a torts professor by the name of Ken Manister, who was instrumental in getting me back on track on the environment. So right. he was, you know, he's retired now, but was uh, at the time, probably one of the top five environmental law professors in the country. Worked with a Supreme Court justice when he was with the attorney general's office in Illinois and kind of took me under his wing. And I joined him at Pillsbury after graduation. So that was that was kind of my my path into into yep. the environment. So, you know, it kind of started with this really inspired event in Yosemite, followed through with it all the way through law school into practice. So that was kind of the, the first kind of you know journey. And I'm so fortunate to have spent three years at Latham because I knew for me I was never going to be a big firm lawyer for very long. I knew the benefit that I would get, you know, going there and all of that, but yep. but it was not it was it wasn't gonna be a long time for you. For me. Yeah. 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 Yep. So the first real inflection point for me to make the pivot to Axiom came on New Year's Day, 2012. And my wife woke me up uh, with a pregnancy stick in my face. It was like, we're having a baby. <laughs> what a New Year's Day present. It was How great. That? It, we had, we probably had, you know, we were still relatively young <laughs> and, and we were we were uh, you know a married couple uh without kids there were probably 20 or 30 people sleeping all over our house because we had a great party the night before yeah and uh and they heard us all you know screaming but you know that was that was what i will call the most kind of impactful inflection point for me i knew what i'd been doing for the last six years in the law firm world, I knew the lifestyle. I was tired, emotionally, physically, mentally, just exhausted. And I knew that there was no way that I wanted to be a parent and feel like that at work. Because what would I have left for the kids? Yeah. Wow. That all on one on one January when wife woke you up, you saw the results of the test, and suddenly, yeah. like it washed over you, did it? The life that you'd experienced in law. In yeah. big law, at least, certainly yeah. 
wasn't the kind of life which was compatible. No, I, you know, and, and I don't want to underestimate or understate the, the immediacy that I felt, right? Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, let me think about it for a couple of days. No, it was like, okay, that's extraordinary. It was a Sunday. Yeah. That yeah. Monday and Tuesday, I got my resume together and I spent the next few months exploring what I wanted to do next and completely stumbled upon Axiom. I had no idea yeah. who they were, none of that. I was, look, I was exploring the in house world and met you know, my former manager at Axiom through that process. And it was like, this is really cool. And if I was, you know, you have the, I have the hindsight, the benefit of hindsight now to look back, like what really drew me there, it's such a different world going into business development and legal consulting away from the practice of law entirely, but in the legal industry. And, you know, for me, it was always wanting to be on the cutting edge of something and doing something new and Seeing everything, you know this, you, you've started yeah. a fantastic legal tech company, seeing everything that lawyers do that isn't right. right. I, I, hate, <laughs> I hate absolutes, but I'm going to use that if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why do you do it this way? You're causing yourself pain, your clients pain, your progeny, like, yeah. stop. Yeah. So it was that kind of a feeling and the opportunity to really attack that from a different viewpoint was very exciting for me. And then, you know, you're not thinking of your life in six-minute increments. That's that's helpful. Yeah. And, and I take it, I mean, I can hear you, the, the passion in your voice there, and I take it that provided a pretty incredible foundation for you for when you decided to take on a role as part of the legal ops team in Facebook. Uh, I assume yeah. that's right. It's the, yeah. the drive for change, for efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about that. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, I spent about six and a half years at Axiom, and I, I really learned through all of my client work and interaction, what does it take to run a legal department? Not very many departments are run well, right? And so I got an opportunity to see small departments, medium departments, huge global departments that were our clients. And I worked with many of their GCs. I worked directly with their heads of legal ops, which was not a role that I was familiar with because it didn't really exist even back then. And so that really started getting me into the world of what it takes right? How do you, how do you fix these issues? How do you grapple with this? How do you solve that? And Facebook happened to be one of my clients. So when they came calling, uh, it was an interesting kind of thought process for me, not something I was terribly expecting. I loved Axiom. I loved the people there, what I was doing, what the company was doing. But again, you kind of, you, you see this opportunity in front of you. Okay. I've been doing it. Probably worked with 50 some odd departments at Axiom. I've been doing it with through the, on the outside. As a trusted advisor, a role that I really valued and really enjoyed. And now you have the opportunity to go to one department. And, you know, as a consultant, you can tell your clients, here are the issues. Yeah. Here are some levers. Here are some recommendations. Knock yourself out. Do you out. want to help you implement? <laughs> yes, no. If not, okay, here yeah. you go. Like You, you yeah. can kind of move on. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, do I, do I really want to then take the next step? So I, I have this first piece. Yeah. Yeah. Do I then want to take the next step and learn and do and see what it takes to implement and execute? Yeah. Does this stuff actually work? Yeah. That's a question that. consultants don't like to ask a, no. um, a lot. Does it actually work? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they I don't like usually that. stick around. You know, I, I yeah. will say, I think I've seen a nice trend, particularly recently, where consultants are implementing as well and executing as yeah. well. Yeah. So I think that, t- that should tie things together in a, in a, in a more meaningful way. Yeah. I'm excited to see how that evolves in, in our industry. But, but again, so another inflection point, and there's a history 
between the company and, and this family, my, my wife out of law school went to Facebook as part of the first legal department, ended up you know, building out a, a number of their functions outside of legal with, with security and law enforcement response and so right. forth. So there were some really longstanding relationships at the company and in the legal department. And so it was a little bit of a familiar place. So, so there was some ties there that I think helped. But again, I, I, you know, for me, if I was to look at the last two changes that I've made in my career, I always try to focus on the opportunity. What can I, yeah. what, what can I do here? And that takes away a lot of the angst around how much are you going to get paid? What's the advancement and this yeah. and that. And it really helps to focus on, am I going to enjoy this work? I, I really share this. I try to hammer this home with my students. If you don't have that as a part of your calculus, when you're considering roles or companies or managers, you're probably doing yourself a disservice. It's, it's not everything, but it's a lot. It's to, to me, it's uphill. <laughs> it's an uphill battle. And you're yeah. always battling yourself. If you don't actually have it, is this what I want to do and what do I want to learn? Because often if you're really passionate about that, the rest of the stuff, the promotions, the pay, that ends up marrying quite well. I mean, for example, doing something in your life which doesn't pay that well, but you, you're you passionate about it and you love it. Well, what you do is you end up adjusting your life yep. <laughs> to reflect and, and so it, it all works out. But if you miss the passion, if you miss the, you know, what contribution am I making? Am I, am I feeling valued? you miss all of that then the, the the rest of it is really really hard to put in place yeah, and and it's right. a constant internal battle yeah i think it's particularly highlighted in the legal industry right and it's i don't know what the yeah. international statistics are like but in the united states lawyers really grapple with mental health issues substance yeah. abuse the point that you just articulated plays a significant role in that yeah. Right. So so I think it's important for for us in the legal profession to educate law students around how to think about their careers in a way that's going to set them up for success. Yeah. So tell me, you, you arrived in 2018. You've already ha got a relationship because you're working with the Facebook team through um, yeah. Axiom. What, what do you find in terms of what is there um, for a, you know, a legal ops department? And what are you thinking to yourself? What do I need to do in the first 12 months, 24 months? Yeah. And where, where do you feel you are today? So break yeah. those two down for me. Yeah. The most cliched thing you'll hear from me throughout this, it's a journey. <laughs> That's <right>. <laughs> it's <laughs> a journey. It, it, for me, it began in November of 2018. But but I came in with a, a relatively specific mandate and a, and a remit right. for the first part of my focus. And in the spring of 2018, so about three years ago, Cambridge really exploded yep. into the public sphere, right? And as you can imagine, Beyond kind of the immediate PR aspect of it, there is was a slew of legal issues that needed to be addressed. Yeah. And with that, on a global scale, and with that comes cost, right? Yep. Facebook's journey as a department has been pretty meteoric in its rise. So in 2016, we were about 150, maybe 200 people. And by the end of this year, we will be 1,600 plus. Wow. Okay, so that's five years, wow. yeah. more than 10x growth, right? Yeah. That's huge. I've yeah. never seen. And and so, you know, in any scenario like that, and I don't care if it's a legal department, any org that grows with that kind of scale and speed, all the little inefficiencies get magnified. Yeah. Right. So my immediate remit was to look at our outside council spend that was uh, increasing pretty significantly and try and figure out what we were going to do about it. Yep. 
And so I spent the first year, and this is how you and I met, in fact, yeah. I spent the first year trying to figure out and understand, you know, our, our outside counsel relationships, uh, the work streams, and then and then set up some programs to help it start help addressing that cost. Yep. And for, it's actually, you know, in a lot of ways, I look back, it's like, it couldn't have been a better situation because I was focused on one thing. And as you know, you go in house or you, you a million things get thrown at you. You could literally spin your wheels for years and not feel like you've accomplished anything. So I, I find myself to be fortunate in that I came in with a remit that allowed me to really understand the landscape and understand the legal department and what the issues were. So as I was setting up these programs, I was also exploring like, you know, how do we function? How does the work get delivered? Where are the biggest gaps? And that kind of led to a more formalization of the, of the legal ops team, moving under Alan Lowe, who's, who's now my manager, and really starting to attack these issues from a centralized perspective and a holistic yep. perspective, which is the journey that we're on now. Yep. Our costs have not stopped going up. That's, you know, we have more external threats than we did even when I started. Yep. So we want to make sure that we're staying at least on top of that aspect of it. And how do you feel kind of nearly, it's three years in, almost three years into yeah. the role, the progress that you've made and really what you think lies ahead over the next couple of years, your priorities, what you're going to focus on. Yeah. It's still a journey. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, of course. Let's, let's, let's look back. Let's look yeah. back. And, you know, you got to start with like, where, yeah. how was the success? Like, would you view it as successful? Yeah, I'd say aspects yeah. of it were very successful. We have some programs across the department that I stood up and that my team has stood up and now executes that are incredibly beneficial on a, on a number of levels, right? And the more that you uncover, the more that you're like, wow, the, the mountain's getting bigger. We got to yeah. figure it out. Yep. Here's what I'd love. I'd love for our department to be in a place where our people are focused on the most core strategic work, right? And that's often one of the biggest, and from my perspective, it should be one of the biggest priorities for a legal ops team is how do I create that for our legal department? knowledge management, cohesion. How do we work as a team? Where do we reduce redundancies? Where do we diminish, automate, eliminate really kind of administrative tasks, right? And all of that comes together. When you try to do it at a size of, you know, 50 or 100, yeah, I could really wrap my arms around that pretty quickly. But for yeah. us, that's, you know, that was six years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's not like our growth is slowing. Like we're, we're still skyrocketing ahead as a company. We just had our earnings call today. The business is doing really well. It's certainly more external threats. That's not going to stop, right? Yeah. We operate in 160 countries or something like that. So I've never quite seen anything or experienced anything like this, which is both terrifying and exciting at the same time as I get to work. You know, I, I talked earlier about wanting to work on cutting edge issues in the legal industry. What better place? Yeah to try and be successful around those issues than a company like Facebook. So yeah, no, I, I would say that we've had lots of success along the way, and we've got a lot more work to do to create the atmosphere and to create the kind of legal department that that I just articulated. Yeah. And when you actually are just thinking about, because um, this, this is a topic I, I speak to a number of general counsels and heads of legal ops about, but when they're thinking about their external spend, the, their relationships with their outside counsel, which are key relationships, of course, but there are pressures to optimize and make sure that that spend is kept under control. How are you balancing those 
kind of competing factors because they are strong relationships with your law firms. You want to make sure that law firms are being motivated and the teams you're working with are motivated. But at the same time, you need accountability and you need to make sure you're running the department and spending as efficiently as you can. I mean, I love what you've got actually on. Uh, I saw on, on your LinkedIn page, helping Facebook legal run meanly <laughs> while spending less green. I mean, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Those priorities compete in those kind of relationships with your external counsel, you know, how, how do you, if they do, how do you balance them? Yeah, the, the short answer to your your question is absolutely they are are conflicting priorities, and I do think departments, lawyers often underestimate the ability for them to to be congruent. Yep. And I think you're seeing the evolution in this. I'm sure you're you're, you're seeing this in yeah, with your own product and, and your own yep. platform, client and, and law firm interaction. We, you know, as a legal industry, we're, we're always so slow to change and, and law firms have really been at the apex of pricing and delivery models for so long. That's really starting to change. That helps yeah. everyone. And yeah. particularly helps the buy side of the equation. So, you know, in terms of how we address that conflict or those competing interests, is really just be very straightforward with our law firms in terms of conversation, our expectations, our own realities, right? Our own financial constraints. Yep. But also set up financial models and engagement models that are fair to both sides. And, you know, without getting into too deep of a conversation around yep. alternative yep. fee arrangements and uh, additional levers that you can pull, not all AFAs are the same, right? And I think, I think part of the problem, there's lots of problems in pricing, but you, you've had this historic effort-based model with law firms. With many yep. industries, they've moved away from that. You look at consulting, yep. for example, they've really yep. moved away from that. The law has been slower to move away from that, but that's really starting to accelerate now. But you know, just because you have an AFA doesn't mean it's going to work well, right? You yeah. you have you need results, and in our world, my gosh, do you need results, yeah. right? So you got to have that. You got to have the right firm to do the right job, right? And then you got to make sure that the economics of it makes sense for everyone. Because you know, I, I've heard plenty of horror stories where a client sets up a flat fee with a firm for a project or case or an M&A deal, whatever it may be. And either the client feels like they've been hosed because, you know, they spent too much and they didn't, you know, didn't need to, or the law firm, you know, taps out on its resources for a variety of different reasons. And they got to come back to the client for more money. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like we've done a really good job where we do have sophisticated AFA programs of leveraging the right kinds of AFAs and understanding that, you know, to your point, these are very valuable external partners for us. Yeah. Let's be fair to them, but have cost control measures. Yep. So they're not mutually exclusive and, and you can do both. You can have it yep. all. You really can. You just, you, I think there's some education in the industry that needs to happen from that perspective. And I think clients need to understand that and, and be able to, to be flexible around it. But but I do think we've done a great job with, with those aspects of it where we have those programs all down. And, and I think it's possible. Yep. Moving on, COVID. Tell me what the impact was at the Facebook legal department for, of COVID, uh, what the last you know, 12, 15 months has been like, and and whether you think there's been any real permanent changes in the ways of working as a result of as a result of COVID. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, one of the, the primary permanent changes is is just more openness to remote work and yep. shifting our workforce over time to be a, a significant percentage fully remote. I give you, you know, another data point. My wife's company, which she has now been 
at for six years is fully remote. They've never, yep. they don't have offices. They're, they're a distributed workforce. Coinbase has gone in that direction now. Yep. So, you know, listen, if our earnings call is any indication, we've Seems all, be none of us have really been in an office for, you know, 13 months now. And, you know, the business is doing pretty well. Yeah. So I, I think that's an important thing that we will continue to see evolve as time goes by. And I'm excited to see how that plays out in uh, at Facebook. I've hired a person in Washington, D.C. That's probably not something that I would have considered yep. pre-COVID. And she's fantastic. And look at that. We've got a, a bigger yep. talent pool to choose from. So that's one aspect of it. The one thing that I, I again, I, I think there's a privilege around this for Facebook, which is not necessarily true for you know a, a lot of companies, is that we leverage technology even pre-COVID to communicate and deliver work. So even in Menlo Park, we have a huge campus. I had you know cross-functional stakeholders that were a 10-minute drive away. Well, I'm not going to get in my car and go drive to their building to have an in-person yep. meeting. So we would leverage VCs even yep. in the Menlo Park office. So yep. we were used to doing that. So moving to you know the logistics, because there's a separate aspect of this that I want to address as well. Yep. The logistics of it, I think were fairly seamless. Uh, and yep. again, I can't speak for the entire company, but for my team, for most of the legal department, I think they would share the same sentiment. The part that's really hard is the human aspect of it. Yeah. You and I are communicating. Yeah. I should really know how far apart we are. 10,000 miles? Uh, let's say 10,000 plus, correct. 10, okay. <laughs> right? But you and I know yeah. each other. We have somewhat of a relationship. We can connect yeah. even through this medium. We can connect. What about people that onboard for the first time and yeah. have to do it completely remotely? How do they yeah. build those relationships? How do they create their brand with their clients, with their yeah. peers, with their managers? That's hard. That's yeah. really hard. So I think that's an impact that I think we will continue to feel for some time. I'll give you just one logistical challenge we had. We had a contingent worker that was supposed to start on our team, I think at the end of March. And I think just, you know, just getting, just moving our logistics piece on how we get people hardware and systems access remotely. It took her two and a half months to really start working. Wow. So that was early on where we've yep. ironed all that out now. And I, I recently onboarded a new hire in Washington, D.C. That's gone incredibly well, but you got to put a little bit more intention into it. And I think, you know, that's the onus on the manager and the team, but, but the company's been great about giving us resources, things to think about, and certainly leveraging the technology to, to be able to do that. Yeah, look, it's certainly the case. I mean, it is extraordinary how in the last 12 months, how little the impact has been in at least in relation to the sorry the financial performance of the companies that you know we we're working for or we work with yeah what is unknown i suppose is the non financial impact uh, i mean the teams the the stresses of being continually you know on call or on zoom or whatever it might be yeah that's to play out the other thing to play out which i do think about a lot is the the kind of the, the energy the ideas and the problem solving that happens when mm. you're in person i mean that's me personally i'm i usually I like to energize or get energized by people yeah. and the brainstorming aspect and that's a lot of the, the real innovation happens there so I, I do think to myself i wonder about that bit i wonder how yeah. much that bit's going to be impacted across all industries yeah. the real kind of needle moving innovation yeah. that you get from uh, from the in-person so well I have to wait yeah. and see, but... Um, no, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I had a habit of getting up, 
you know, almost every hour if I was at my desk in the office and just kind of taking a and little lap around or on yep. the floor, just around the floor. And sometimes I would stop in to the micro kitchen and grab some water or grab a coffee and you run into someone and you just, hey, how are you doing? Let's do it. All of a sudden you're in a conversation and then all these ideas are blowing yeah. up in your head. Yeah, we don't have that. And, and I yeah. agree with you. It, it, it's a, it's a, your assessment is a qualitative one. I have no idea how we would quantify it, but I would, yeah, I would no, agree. I've got it no would idea. have an impact. I mean, it is having yeah. an impact. Yeah. yeah. Let's switch gear a little bit. I've heard you talk actually on a number of occasions, and I, I know how passionate you are in relation to um, diversity and inclusion, yeah. and it's, a, it's at the forefront of the Facebook legal team. Tell us about some of the initiatives over the course, uh, certainly of your time there, on diversity and inclusion and, and what you guys are proud of. Sure. Well, actually, one of my, I think my very first project, so I started in November and this started in December. So I'd just been there for a month. Yep. We had been collecting diversity data from our outside counsel for about a year. And we hadn't gotten an opportunity yet as a department to put a framework around what, what do we care about in this diversity data? How should should we be evaluating our firms? Is there a framework we want to create? All of those kinds of yep. things. And so I spent, you know, uh, December, January, and February of the next year developing that framework with a newly formed DNI steering committee in the legal department. And uh, coming out of it, and this is all all public, and so I can share this. But we we decided to create a law firm diversity champion award, an annual yep. award, based on the data that we were collecting. So we are now in year three of that program and it has evolved. It has grown. We've pushed our law firms to do better. We use, you know, again, this, I think this is why it's so well suited for the legal operations field to do this kind of a thing. It's very metrics based. It's data driven, right? Yep. We need to be able to measure progress, progress, diversity, progress. If you can even call it that in the legal industry, particularly yep. here in the United States is abysmal. You can look at the NALF statistics every year and kind of scratch your head and be like, well, all these firms say they're doing something. The industry says it's acting. Clients are pushing. We're not seeing any change mm. in the equity partnership ranks. What is going yep. on? Yep. So that has been the foundation of the problem that we as a department wanted to address. We spend a lot of money on outside counsel. We have buying power. We have brand power. And from my perspective being the kind of company that we are, we have a responsibility to do this. And so I took that very seriously. The department takes it very seriously. And so that's that's been that portion of the journey to our earlier cliche, Jim, about what how we wanted to address that. So you know, we score our top 40 firms by spend every year. We recognize our champion. And then we debrief with every single firm about how they did, what we looked at, why they may have fallen short if they weren't in the top few, and how they can improve. And whether you are one out of 40 or 40 out of 40, the message is you need to improve. And we've recently yeah. upped kind of the, the baseline requirements for Facebook matters and diversity and so forth. So we couldn't have done that had we not seen yep. some initial progress in the first two years. So I'm excited to, to continue down that path because I think if you look around the legal industry where it's particularly a problem with respect to diversity is in the partnership ranks at, at Big yep. Law. It does sound, actually, and I've, I've thought this, that that is not a short-term, there's not going to be a short-term solution to yeah. that. There certainly has to be, I think, 
clients like Facebook being really clear on measuring and holding to account because that's the only way in the longer or medium to longer term that change is going to take place. But the, if you like, the structures are so institutionalized at those big law firms that it's, it's going to take a while before you really see the changes right through to the you know, senior equity ranks yeah. of, of those partnerships. Do, do you agree? Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. these are systemic issues, right? Yep. This is not something that a Band-Aid will fix very quickly. You really got to get in there where the power dynamics lie. Where Where yeah. is the power held at the law firm, right? And collectively at the law firms, it, it's, in the, it's in the governing bodies for the law firms. Well, who's, yeah. who comprises those governing bodies, right? So until you start changing that, what effect and what change and impact are you really going to have? Yep. So our hope is that we can play a role in creating more diverse partners at these law firms and you know, hopefully their own journey into those executive ranks is eventually going to lead to a place where we don't have to have this conversation anymore. I don't know how long that's going to take. And I don't know how patient the world is anymore. Look at how things have exploded in the last year on the racial front in this country, right? And I'm pretty impatient. I share that very freely with some of our firms. I do think they're trying. I do think that um, there is intention there. So I think we got to just, we got to put it together and push a little bit higher. I think that's that's where we're, we're hopefully going to see some change. Actually, I, I always say impatience usually results in progress. Yeah. If you're not impatient, then progress is, is often a bit slower. Sure. Actually, for, for, for those who are, let's say, a little bit earlier in their journey around a legal operations department and, and what goals they should be setting for themselves, what advice would you give as to the perhaps the lower hanging fruit that they should focus on to get those early wins before you know before yeah. starting to develop in their own maturity you know? yeah you know i think part of the problem with legal operations sometimes is that there's too much low hanging fruit that is symptom based and not really looking at the, the the core problems and the core issues yeah and it's something i've had to get better at because you know you you see it right there in front of you, you're like, I can solve this and it'll look great. And that's true. But what have you really solved for? And I think you have to ask yourself that question. And I'm continually asking that question of myself, of my team, when we're thinking about a program or initiative or, or how we're going to execute on something or why we're choosing to engage in, in a particular fashion, what's the actual problem? Like, What are we solving for? So, you know, with that in mind, you know, I I think you really have to look at, you know, talk to leadership and see where the pain points are. And it could be a multitude of things. Spend is, if you look at any survey, you know, Bloomberg, ACC, whoever you want to take, spend is top of mind literally for everyone, right? I think it comprises, I think the last survey I saw, 80 to 85% of the respondents said it's top priority. That's yep. a great one right there. You, it's, yep. it's it's very measurable, right? Whether you are you have to show actual cost reduction, which really no one should show. I mean, if you're growing as a company, your overall legal spend should, yep. relatively speaking, should be growing. So how you look at those kinds of issues. But I think spend's a really good one to take a look at because it gets you into every part of the legal department. It gets you into data. It gets you into analytics. It gets you into execution. And it's it's a relatively straightforward way in which to show success and to measure success. So I, I'd say that's one, but yep. but make sure you're looking at the problem because far too often spend is a symptom, right? It's it's You never spend too yep. much money because you want to spend too much money. That yep. would be the problem. You spend too much money because 
you know, the work segmentation internally is not properly aligned, or you have tier one firms doing tier three work or too much of it, or you don't have any rigor around what stays in-house versus what goes externally, right? Or you don't have other- Or the scoping. You're not rigorous around the scoping. It's just kind of open-ended hourly rates. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, again, like most in-house lawyers, they, they, they need to get work done. So they don't, they don't stop to think about these things. So yep. how does a legal operations team create just enough friction to not slow the work down, but get the kind of rigor that you need to create it in a way they don't really have to think about doing anything. And it just, it happens with the workflow. Yep. And is there anything which in the industry is kind of accepted, if you like, as, as best practice, but which you don't actually agree with? <laughs> wow ah, that's quite a question something in legal operations that's yeah something in legal ops uh, look I, I, I like to, this like a myth buster question yeah. is there a yeah. myth out there yeah. that you'd like to challenge well I, I mean I, maybe this won't be news to yep. anyone but there has been this myth in the legal industry that if you pay more you get a better work product uh-huh. and that you reduce risk <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And man, do I still see that pervasive with anyone I talk to that hasn't yeah. either been at an ALSP or actually dug into the issues. Yeah. Mark Harris. I love that one the, actually. I, I, yeah, who's the, who's the founder of Axiom, former CEO. He's now switched over onto the the contracting CLM space with an Axiom spinoff called Knowable. But I remember the first time that he talked to the leadership team at Axiom about that concept. This would probably have been 2013 for me, maybe late 2012, just a few months after I started. And it wasn't that I disagreed with that concept that he articulated. It was the way in which he articulated and then how he broke it down. And then he showed how Axiom was addressing that myth that I was like, wow, like you're right. In-house departments, certainly law firms, they grab onto this. We're a profession of pedigree and achievement and degrees and law school names and all those kinds of law, big law and all those kinds of, that's not what clients really care about. Clients care about results and you don't have to have that pedigree to get results. Now, how you make that match, that's a harder problem to solve and it requires effort and intention and the right approach. But, but I think that myth is one that needs to completely be blown away. Yep. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. And we, we do it, I think, in our own just personal lives. If we're spending more on a product, we're thinking, well, the quality must be high. We're comfortable. You know, we're, you know we've made a better. We haven't gone cheap. Yeah. So I think that there's a little bit of that. There's, there's certainly yeah. that in professional service yeah. and law. We, we haven't gone cheap, so we must be getting value for the extra dollar that we're paying. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, you know, partner rates are pushing 2000 plus an hour. Are you really? Is that the value that we're talking about here? I I don't, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, you know, listen, I think in the last few years, the the largest growing segment of the legal industry, and if you'd say there's three main segments, and I'd say uh, law firms, in-house departments, and ALSPs are the three main segments. And yep. by the way, once the regulations change in the United States, the big four are going to be engaging in the practice yep. of law in a way that you have not seen before. Oh, they're setting themselves up for that now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you have those three as the main you know, delivery providers in the legal industry, the largest going segment 
in that has been ALSPs from a percentage standpoint. And then yep. next is in-house. And law firms are actually shrinking in yep. in their market share, you know, revenue not so much, and their profits are increasing because they just increase their rates more every year. And that's yep. inc- that increases their that's, but that's not, you know, they're gonna have to really innovate or or they're they're gonna start becoming obsolete even more so than they are in a lot of the high volume work, which is the highest revenue work that they get. Yeah. It's funny though, I have been wrong in predicting the kind of demise, if you like of the profit per equity per equity figures and and so forth in the global 100 because I've thought that innovation and demand from clients would drive more competition more quickly yeah. but it look to date it hasn't really been happening certainly the top 100 200 law firms are continuing to increase in profitability the times are still pretty good despite the fact yeah. that you know ALSP share of the market is increasing too so I'm now reluctant to, uh, to predict the demise of big law I, I, I think it'll continue to get strong but I think the customers are getting more savvy yeah. about the way uh, uh, the way they're engaging the way they're spending uh, and making sure that well they're getting more for their green as you put it yeah Absolutely. Tell me, actually, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? Probably be a be a father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, you know, it's 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 the most exciting, terrifying, challenging, patience challenging, rip your hair out if I had hair yep. experience yeah. <laughs> that I continue to have. But you know, yeah, I I would say if I was really to tap into kind of what some of my biggest fears are. It's all around parenting and around, yeah. around things happening to the kids. So that's that's hard. Like yeah. I, I was never the kind of person who lost sleep at night over really over anything. I could, that's just I could always really sleep well. But you know, there there are sometimes challenges with kids. I have a six year old and an eight year old, two boys, and uh, they're great. You know, but you know, lots of energy and all that. But that's one area of my life which I haven't quite you know gotten a handle on from a from a calm perspective. Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. Look, that's probably, you're only probably about 20 or 30 years away from now. So. <laughs> but it's, you know, my, my mom, she she loves kind of smirking at me when I'm having an issue with one of, of my kids. Of course she right does. Her, she's like, oh, yeah, hey, remember that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Look, look, and the, you know, obviously bringing children in the world, teaching them, and the uncertainty of not knowing lots of things, how they're going to turn out, whether you're doing the right thing, what kind of world they're, they're going to grow up into, all of that. That is the stuff. You know, I ask the question sometimes, what keeps you up at night? That is the stuff, typically, yeah. that yeah. keeps us up at night. Yeah, I mean, going back to the environmental conversation, right? I mean, yeah. We're all hearing about, you know, the acceleration of the impact of climate change. Uh, I, I talk about this actively with both of my boys. I'm like, look, yep. I'll be gone, but your generation is going to have to deal with some really serious issues. And I, I know every generation says that to the next, but this yep. is like, yep. you know, potentially yeah. catastrophic for the human race kind of issues. So learn how to work together. Like, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned in my corporate experience, all the skill sets, all the intelligence, none of that matters at all if if people don't learn how to work together and have trust and and have resiliency i think those three things are so critical for progress i'm not sure if that answer now might dovetail into my next question which i like to ask which is advice to your 25 year old self (laughs) (laughs) 
That was almost 20 years ago. I don't know if I can remember yeah. far that, that far back. You know, stay the course. I, I went through a period of self-doubt, pretty significant self-doubt actually, about my path in the three years that I was at Latham, which was smack dab yeah. in the middle of my, my 25th year. And I learned a lot about resilience. Like, I, I truly do believe like if, if I was to pick a characteristic that is kind of highest priority for success, it's resilience. Oh, absolutely um, great. And, and I mean, you know, if I think about that in the legal operations space, we often have to educate senior leaders and the department and naysayers and educate and teach and all of those kinds of things. And then, you know, things don't always go as planned. Yeah. <laughs> And you got to just be okay with it and be like, yeah, you know what? This is, we got to, we learned X, Y, and Z. So we're going to pivot here a little bit and keep moving forward. Cause if you let that get you down, you're going to be toast. It's, you're not yeah. going to last very long. You're going to be unhappy and, and, and it's not going to look good. Not going to feel good. I'm not sure if you've um, read uh, Angel Duckworth's uh, work on grit. And she talks about, you know, she talks about no. grit resilience. Sure. And that is the, and if it's, Actually, if I can give you one word of advice in relation to children actually working on developing their grit, their yeah. resilience, that is going to be the single most important, I reckon, characteristic. So you can get that yeah. bit right, then I think that's the best defense to, I think, mental health, I think, as well as a characteristic of just getting through you know, the challenges yeah. that we all have. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely right. Actually, Verma, I've had an absolute blast speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining me. This was great, Jim. Thanks so much. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. Fantastic. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T, We'd love to hear from you.